0: The week of Easter or the week of Resurrection Sunday kind of affords Christians the opportunity to speak with people in the community and they're generally a little bit more open to talk about the things of the Lord. And so today, I took the opportunity to speak with three different people from three different walks of life and I simply asked them two questions. The first question is, do you believe in the resurrection? All three of them said yes the second question I asked is how significant is the resurrection to your life the first person looked at me and said nothing and then said everything the second person looked at me and said "Oh, I don't know heaven the third person said And that was that. So we believe in the resurrection, but we don't know what its significance is. Let's read what we have in our Holy Week uh, bulletin. is a response to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's launch into what we're going to study tonight. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant event in the history of mankind. If true, the resurrection testifies to divine satisfaction of Jesus' death and produces human hope, power, glory, and victory. If false, Christians are duped and humanity is doomed. But praise be to God that Christ is, in fact, risen from the dead. He is alive. This truth should compel every Christian to a life of victorious worship and persevering service to our Lord. It also beckons every lost person to turn from sin and run to Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord of glory. The way I figure it, there are probably three different kinds of people in the room tonight. There are those who are excited about the resurrection. There are those who came tonight thrilled that the Savior is not in the grave, but that he is risen indeed. And that might be the overwhelming majority of the people in the building tonight, and praise God for that. But there are also those who believe in the resurrection who are here tonight, but are ambivalent, neutral, not really excited. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah, it's a really good thing. Okay. Let's, let's do this tomorrow, and, and it'll be all good, and we'll keep going. And then there are those who are in opposition to it. There are those who don't even believe it. There are those who have yet to see Christ for who he is, see Christ for what he's done. And whether it be strong hostility or whether it be just kind of a silent hostility, you reject all that Jesus has done, both on the cross and coming out of the tomb. And I want to speak to you from 1 Corinthians 15 tonight, and I want the Word of God to minister to your heart. And I will tell you, if you're excited about the risen Savior, I want you to be more excited by the end of this message. If you are ambivalent and neutral, I want your heart to be set aflame for the glory of Christ because He has risen from the grave. And if you oppose the resurrection, if you oppose Jesus Christ, I want to show that you are hopeless tonight. That you are without hope, but in Christ you can have hope, and I'd like you to give your life to Jesus. All right? So let's begin looking at the resurrection realities, 10 resurrection realities from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I, I don't think I've preached more than eight verses in the last year. Tonight I'm going to attempt to preach 58 verses. So let's put our seatbelts on, and we may go over the speed limit uh, a few times. The first thing I want you to see is the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The importance of it. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he opens up a treatise, an exposition of the doctrine of the resurrection, and he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now I want to pause for one moment and say that in the church, the doctrine of eschatology is really important. The the, the study of the last things. The doctrine of ecclesiology is very important. The doctrine of the church. We need to know what the church is all about. The doctrine of angelology. Demons, Satan, angels themselves. All that is very important. But there is no doctrine that is more important than gospelology. These are the things of first importance. And what are they? He says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried... That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so, first of all, everyone in the church needs to understand that Paul teaches us exactly what the gospel is. He lays it out. He lays, this is the fundamental, the basic teaching of the gospel. This is the gospel that saves. All right, he says, first of all, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He says, for our sins implicit in this is that we're all sinners that we all are separated from God that we are dead in our trespasses and sins that we don't have life the life that we live is a living death That there is a chasm between us and God and that Christ came and died for our sins. And when he says according to the scriptures, he's saying because the scriptures told us that this would happen. He says read Isaiah 53, read Psalm 22, read the passages that foretell that the Messiah is going to be a suffering servant that he died in your place. He did not merely die as an example for you. He did not merely die as one to set a good a good pace for you so that you can know what it's like to sacrifice. He died in your place. And then he says he was buried The reason he says that he was buried, he wants to say, look, he he wasn't just left up on the cross. He's he's making a transition point here. He was literally buried because it sets up the next thing he says about uh, the gospel. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He says, listen, go read Psalm 110. Go read Psalm 16. These things were foretold to us in the Old Testament scriptures that not only would the Messiah be a suffering servant, but he would be a victorious savior. And so he rose from the dead according to the Scriptures. And what Paul says, if you look down at verses 1 and 2, he says, this is the message that I preach to you. This is the message that you received. This is the message in which you stand on. This is the message that you are being saved by. You have deliverance from your sin based on that fundamental message of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, this first resurrection reality is the importance of the resurrection. And notice that the gospel is not merely the death and burial of Jesus Christ, but it's the death, burial, and what? Resurrection. So I want to tell you why it's important. Because in the resurrection, God the Father is yelling out to the world, I am satisfied with what my son did on Calvary. I am pleased. Last night, we heard Tim Britton lead communion, and he said he used a $4 word. It was called propitiation. Y'all remember that? He says a $4 word, propitiation. He says it's a wrath-satisfying sacrifice, all right? Well, this is the deal. We would not know that the death of Jesus on the cross satisfied God if he didn't tell us. But when he rose his son out of the grave and he walked out of the tomb, God is telling everyone everywhere that my holy, righteous wrath and anger against sinners has been completely satisfied. I'm delighted with it. When Jamie and I were were dating, we we, we first dated February 13th, 1996. Now, Now, by April 13th, I knew that I loved her, and I was satisfied with her, all right? It took about six more months, December the 20th, I proposed to her, and I said, I am satisfied with you, I love you, and I want you to be my bride. That August, the next August, I stood in front of 300 people, and I looked at my bride in white and took her as my wife, and in front of the 300 friends and family that we had, I was declaring that this woman satisfies me. I'm declaring to everyone that. Well, when Jesus came out of the tomb, God is declaring to everyone that he is satisfied with his son. It is a public proclamation. And so the resurrection confirms the father's satisfaction. Second of all, we have the proof of the resurrection. Look at verses 5 to 8. The proof of the resurrection. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So keep your eyes down at the text. Who did Jesus appear to? He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. He appeared to the twelve. Those are the apostles, the disciples. He appeared to more than 500 believers. And then he appeared to James. Interestingly, he throws in James. This is the brother of Jesus. And do you realize that all the way up to six months before Jesus goes up to the to to the to the cross at Calvary, that his own brother James didn't even believe that he was the Messiah? And yet, James goes on to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Why? How could a brother who grew up with Jesus, who denied him, who was embarrassed by him, completely do an about face after he watches his own brother crucified and humiliated and all of that on the cross, how could he then turn around and just switch gears and say, you know what, I changed my mind about my brother. I really do believe in him. I know he died, but I, I still believe in him, and so I want to lead his church. The reason that it happened is because he saw his brother risen from the dead. Now, Jewish law said that you had to confirm a fact by two or three witnesses. Two or three witnesses. He lays out for us right here that there are over 500 witnesses to his resurrection. It, 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 it just really flies all over me when I watch History Channel, and I see these scholars from all over, not only the United States, but in Britain especially, and they do these... these um, you know, kind of stories on Rome, the power and the glory, or Rome, engineering and empire, or they'll they'll take some of the Caesars or emperors or whatever, and they begin to make these cases about what kind of people they were and all the things that they thought and felt and acted and everything like else. And you you kind of analyze it, and you come to realize that only one or two people could possibly have known that about that emperor. But they state it as fact, they write books about it, and they make all kinds of money on it. But you have over 500 people who saw the resurrected Jesus and they think it's a myth. Why is this? It's because the hard and calloused heart of the person who resists and rejects the glory of God. Listen, Paul says, there's only a few that fall asleep. Go ask James. Go ask the apostles. Go to Jerusalem and ask if anyone actually saw the resurrected Jesus because I'll tell you, They're living. They're around. They'll give testimony. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. Don't let anybody else tell you any different. Amen? All right, so let's look at number three. The fruit of the resurrection. The fruit of the resurrection, verses 9 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles, Paul says, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul could give the testimony, I hated Jesus Christ. I hated the people of Jesus Christ. I persecuted them. And then one day, I was on my way to imprison them, and the the resurrected Lord of glory stopped me in my tracks. He revealed himself to me in a different way than what the other apostles uh, experienced, in a different way than the 500 experienced, but I saw him. And he brought me to my knees. And he brought me to repentance. And he brought me to a place where I didn't like my self-righteousness. I didn't like who I was. I wanted to turn from my sin and from myself. And I wanted to turn to him and love him and live for him and preach him and enjoy him for the rest of my life. And that is exactly, Paul says, what has happened. How did it it change Paul? He he repented and he turned. And, and you know, listen to this, y'all. The Apostle Paul went from the the head dude, the the guy that everybody wanted to be in the Jewish religion, the guy who, if there were posters of icons in that day, little Jewish boys would have had posters of the Apostle Paul in their bedroom, right? He went from that kind of stature to hated and persecuted, and what did he do? He went out and went to Jewish synagogues and preached the resurrection of Jesus. He went out to Gentile homes and preached the resurrection of Jesus. He went to city marketplaces and preached the resurrection of Jesus. He ascended the hills of the greatest philosophers and the greatest quote-unquote theologians and preached the resurrection of Jesus. He got laughed at. He got abused. He got blasphemed. He got thrown out of town. But why did he continue? Because he saw the resurrected Lord of glory. And you know what we have today? We have millions and millions and millions of people who believe in him because not only did he preach it, but he, people got saved, churches got planted, 13 books of the Bible got written, and you and I are here today because he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's the fruit of the resurrection. The denial of the resurrection, verses 12 to 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ Whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, some people in the church at Corinth We're believing some old Greek philosophy that that when you die, your body just perishes forever and ever and ever, and it disintegrates, and that's all, and then your soul continues to live. And Paul destroys that thinking because he says, if that's true... Then that means that Jesus' body is still in the grave, rotting away, and God has not put his stamp of approval on the death of Jesus. Therefore, you're still in your sins, you are dead, you are lost, and you are hell-bound. Wow. And not only that, if you just look down at the text that we just read, he says, look, if you say there's no resurrection, do you realize what you're saying? You're you're, you're saying that my preaching is empty. Your faith is worthless. I've lied about God. You're still in your sins. The dead in Christ have perished forever. And you and I, Christians, are the most pitiful people on the face of the planet. And I would even say this tonight. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, if you're not convinced of that, this religion, what good is it for you? I'm telling you, it is no good. But in fact, He is risen. Amen. No resurrection means no hope, but with a resurrection, we have hope eternal. Look at the power of the resurrection, verses 20 to 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. That God may be all in all. Now frankly, there are a lot of subjectedness there. A lot of subjections going on. All right. But, but, but let's, let's at least make two observations. Let's make, first of all, the observation about first fruits. All right. Paul assumes that, that they had at least enough of an understanding of the Old Testament that they knew what Leviticus said about first fruits. All right. Leviticus 23 talks about how, how the, the people of Israel would, would plant. And, and, and they, would, they would harvest. And what they would do is they would, they would take the first fruits that came from the harvest, go to the tabernacle, and offer them up to God, thanking God for these first fruits because they were a sign and a guarantee for that which was to come in the big harvest. What Paul's saying is, Jesus is the first fruit of our resurrection. He is the offering. He is the sign. He is the guarantee. He is the deposit. He is the first fruit of our own resurrection. So just as we see him, we know that we're going to follow him in resurrection. And then let's look at the word destroy or destruction. Essentially, Paul is saying Christ will deliver the kingdom to God the Father when he has destroyed all the hostile spiritual forces against him. The power of death, all the the demons, Satan himself, people who reject Jesus and his resurrection. Christ will rule over them. He will destroy all of the principalities and forces who oppose him and what he has done. How powerful is the resurrection? The resurrection is powerful to resurrect all those who trust in him, and it is also powerful to defeat and destroy all who would stand against him and oppose his resurrection. Let's look at number six, the necessity of the resurrection. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with B set Ephesus? If the dead aren't raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now Paul addresses a few different issues that are going on in and around the church at Corinth, and some of these things we really just don't know exactly what they are. All right, Uh, The baptism for the dead, um, apparently the compromise in character, the compromise in morals, the unequally yoked. We don't know the specific stories. And we might even think that there was almost like going to be some footnotes that were coming. And when Paul came back to Corinth, he would actually share with them about these things. But the phrase that I want us to see in this section is in verse 31 where he says, I die every day day. Paul's life was a daily death to self a death to sin a death to self-righteousness a death to fleshly pleasures a death to all the things that he had pursued prior to seeing the resurrected Lord of glory. He died to those things every single day and then he endured hunger for the gospel he endured thirst for the gospel he endured beating for the gospel he endured flogging for the gospel he endured uh, shipwreck for the gospel he endured imprisonment for the gospel he endured being ridiculed for the gospel he endured all things for the sake of the gospel because Jesus is risen from the dead see I just Bob talked about this at length last night if you weren't at ABC then just get the message online at annistonbible.org but he talked about how we are united with Christ in his death and by that that means suffering that means hardship that means death A tough life, it means denying all that your natural and fleshly inclinations seek to do. But what Paul says, I gladly do it. Because when I saw Jesus resurrected... I realized that everything I was pursuing was worthless. It was dung. It was manure. And now I can pursue hard after Jesus because just as Jesus is resurrected from the dead, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead. And what is a little beating? What is a little hardship? What is a little shipwreck when I know that one day I'm going to be seated with him on his throne? I'm going to see his glory. I'm going to behold his glory. I'm going to partake in his glory, and I will be just like him. The resurrection justifies a life of worship and service. Number seven, the glory of the resurrection. The glory of the resurrection. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he's chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That was a mouthful. And there are a number of different concepts that are in, inherent in his teaching, there. I think the one that I want to bring out is this idea of, of a seed. You know, when you plant a seed into the ground in a fertile soil that has a warm temperature, all right, that that that, that is uh, good for planting, and there's a little bit of damp. What begins to happen? Germinates. Germination, right? And so what happens is the, the seed actually begins to die and perish as the sprout and as the fruit begins to grow. And, and the more that the, the fruit or the vegetable or the vine begins to grow, that seed begins to disintegrate. It begins to perish. It begins to go away, right? I'm not, I'm not a great farmer, but I think that's right, right? Okay, so, so basically... Basically, what, what Paul is saying is that our bodies are like that. We go down into the the ground and we begin to disintegrate and we begin to fall away and we you know it just becomes really bad. But because of the resurrection, there is a future glory, there is a growth, there is a sprouting. There is a day of harvest and that day of harvest is when Christ returns, right? And we get to take on that full bloom, that full harvest and it becomes a beautiful thing. Listen, I want to tell y'all that death disturbs me. Am I the only one that's disturbed by death? Last Sunday morning... About 5 a.m., I was sitting in McDonald's, just meditating, and two men walked into uh, the the restaurant and began to speak lowly with a worker, with an employee there. And all of a sudden, that employee began to yell and scream and wail and fell out into the floor and essentially became paralyzed on the ground and yelling and screaming. I've never in my life seen a scene like it. They actually had to carry her out of the, the building. What is going on? Those men brought news that her dad had died. I prayed for her. I thought about her the rest of the day. You know, the reason it is so tragic and it hurts so bad is because it's unnatural. I mean, all of us have had loved ones who have died and we've seen them. We've seen them at a funeral or at the memorial service. And y'all, you know, we, we grieve and we, we want to, oh, they look so good, but in reality we know that there is decay, that they are no longer Because if y'all are like me, you just groan and you you hurt at death. But you know, we don't have to grieve and we don't have to hurt forever or permanently. And we don't have to be as those who have no hope. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has defeated death. He has defeated that sting. He has defeated that hurt. He has defeated that harm. And one day, our bodies, our physical bodies that decay in the dirt and in the ground are going to be raised up miraculously and supernaturally. They're going to meet our souls and we're going to be united and we're going to be just like the resurrected, glorified Jesus. That's the message that Paul is seeking to give to us. The resurrection exchanges death for life, darkness for light, dishonor for honor, and guilt for glory. Number eight. We see the victory of the resurrection. The victory of the resurrection. I'll tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We could go on and on and on, but there are a couple of questions that we can simply ask. What is the sting of death? Sin, right? Can we agree on that? The sting of death is sin. And what is the power of sin? The law. And so, so, if there is no sin, death would not occur. Can we agree on that? All right. But we know that we sin because the law of God is imprinted on our hearts. And then the law of God is written down for us so that we know sin as we look into the the righteous demands of the law and it provokes us and all it does is drive us further and further and further into the pit of, of, of despair and despondency, right? But Paul says Christ lived a righteous, perfect, holy life. He did not sin. And then he took on a body, He took on a body that could die. And so he experienced our death for us. He lived as us. He experienced our death for us. And then he raised from the dead so that we don't have to experience that sting of death. We don't have to experience what the law does to our soul. We get to experience resurrection and glory forever and ever and ever. Our mortal bodies won't be merely revived. They'll be transformed to live imperishably and eternally. The resurrection exchanges defeat for victory. Let's look at number 9 and number 10. We see this in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We see the response to the resurrection in the statement. The response. Paul has gone on for 57 verses. He has written a thesis on the doctrine of the resurrection. And he's not given one single solitary command to tell us what to do. And he saves it for the very last verse. And I believe Paul is saying, I have laid out for you, A case for the resurrection that should be rock solid, that should be this this massive rock that you are to stand on, that you should trust in. And I'm just gonna tell you in one verse what you need to do with that. All right? And this, what does he say? Look, Look down at the text. He says, first of all, be steadfast, settle yourself, fix your place in the gospel. And don't waver from it, he says. And then he says, be immovable. Be unmovable. Be like a massive rock in the ground. I remember I uh, recently was trying to remove a rock out of the ground. You guys ever had like large rocks in, in the ground that you you want to cut your grass, but you're afraid that the blade will actually hit the rock? Well, I mean, you know, y'all probably had, like me, blades have hit rocks before, right? And we know what that does to the lawnmower. And so uh, I was trying to get this big rock out of the ground. And I just kind of went over and tried to pull it out of the ground. And it would not budge. I was surprised by it. I mean, it was big, but, but I, thought I, could, I thought I could budge it. And so I started to kind of get my fingernails into the ground and pull it out, and I couldn't. And then, and then I, I got a shovel, and I tried to get it out, and I kind of dug all the way around. I was like, you know, if I just go a couple of inches, I'll be able to, to pull this thing out. But little did I know, the, the further I, I kind of dug, the deeper the rock get, and, and the more fixed that it actually was, so that I finally just gave up and said, we're just going to cut around it. All <laughs> right? We're just going to cut around it. All right? Paul is saying, be that rock when it comes to the gospel. When it comes to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, be immovable. Be impassable. All right? Some people, some some Christians even say, well, I've got an open mind. Paul would say, shut it. Shut it. And stand on the empty tomb. Always abound in the work of the Lord, he says. Be in excess. Exceed in number and measure to superabounding service under the Lord. And that leads us to the last resurrection reality. It's the confidence of the resurrection. The confidence of the resurrection. He simply says, Knowing. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Every dollar you give to the Lord's work is not in vain. Every nursery you serve in is not in vain. Every Bible study you attend is not in vain. Every minute you spend on your knees praying for the saints is not in vain. Every time you open your mouth to speak the gospel, even though you might risk your job, it is not in vain. Because our Savior is not in the grave. He is risen and you live your life for the glory of God forever until you go to the grave because you will also be resurrected just like Him. Amen?